we uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome back to Planet 8. Greetings, my fellow galactic listeners. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base on Planet 8. As always, by my side is Chief Engineer Bob. In our command center, encircling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite, is our reconnaissance officer, Karen. Today's mission takes us to the world of Star Trek. We're going to be discussing what it is that we are thankful for as it relates to Star Trek. Straight away, let's tune in the interocitor and kick it up to the satellite. Karen, thankful, Star Trek. What would you say to that? Well, Larry and Bob, um, I think we have a lot to be thankful for with Star Trek. You know, it's uh, certainly um, the show has provided people with a tremendous amount of entertainment over the years, but also... Um, obviously, it, it had a really strong message uh, when it originally came out during the 60s. Right. Uh, you know, a message about uh, hope, unity, understanding, all, all those things which were desperately needed. Well, not only then, but now. And, um, you know, through all the different iterations, we've been really lucky. We've gotten so many TV shows, uh, so many sh series, different series, even now with Discovery coming out. Right, right. And then uh, the different movies, although obviously they've varied in quality. Um, but, you know, Star Trek and Star Trek fandom especially. Star Trek fandom has been a really um, special thing. And, and uh, you know, we have all sorts of geek fandom now, but... Star Trek fandom was a very special thing when it first started. You know, there weren't that many big groups of fans dedicated to, um, you know, a particular show or, or comic or whatever you want to call. And uh, Star Trek really sort of set the bar for fandom. And so uh, oh, that kind of devotion to a show, um, and it really kept the show alive, um, is one of the things that I think sets Star Trek apart from from other things and makes it special. Indeed. Bob? Well, you know, I'm old enough that... Uh, I was a little kid, but I'm old enough to remember Star Trek when it first aired and uh, and when it went off. And then when it came back in syndication, and that's when the whole fandom grew, 
mm. and the whole phenomenon started. And really, you know, before you had comic book conventions and monster paloozas and chillers and whatever, you had Star Trek conventions. That's <laughs> where it kind of all started. And a lot of them started as just like, you know, in the gymnasium of a junior high school somewhere. Right. Or uh, they graduated to a hotel at some point or a convention center. Now it's big business, but back then it was just, yeah, definitely a ground roots type of thing. And, you know, it was pure Trek. It was the, f all they had was the first series. So, mm -hmm. you know, you'd go in there and, you know, you go in the dealer's room and there'd be phasers and tribbles and whatever. But, um, and, you know, really the stars back then, you know, they'd come out to just about any of them. You know, I think uh, probably by the end of the 70s, I had seen probably every actor from the original Star Trek at a con live. Cool. And uh, there was one in Oakland that finally had like Shatner and Nimoy at it. But uh, yeah, George Takei was at all those things. And, mm -hmm. you know, Nichelle Nichols was always there. And, uh, you know, you'd get to meet and kind of understand some of the minor players like a Bruce Hyde or a William Campbell, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, it, was, it, was, you know, it was a very simple time, <laughs> but a very fun time. And Star Trek, you know, um, you didn't worry about whether or not the effects held up mm -hmm. or, you know, there was a zipper on the back of the Mugato or whatever. Um, you just enjoyed it for what it was. It was kind of pure and simple and, right. you know, and obviously it grew from there and more series and more movies and everything else. But, um, yeah, I think I'm really thankful for the, just the way it all started and the way it all grew from a simple three-season television show that everyone thought would just right. go off into maybe syndication and, you know, just be another show, and it became a whole phenomenon just in and of itself, an entire industry. The franchise. That's right. The it, franchise. Yeah, you know, I grew up watching Star Trek uh, in syndication, and um, it was a bonding time that I had with my, my mother and some of my siblings, um, she loved and still loves Star Trek, and that kind of started me on this path of fandom. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. I'm very thankful for the memories. Uh, as far as the original series goes, the music, the special effects, the acting, the stories, the morals that... Uh, you know, a lot of the episodes had in, in what is good, what is bad, what is acceptable, um, the prime directive, you know, things like that uh, were good. And you know, past episode that we did for Planet 8 talked about dystopian futures. This was the utopian future. You know, you had every race represented on that bridge as well as, you know, a Vulcan from another planet. You know, so it's not only did we get past today, but we moved into tomorrow successfully as a race, you know. And not only that, but we started a united federation of planets. And so we didn't need money anymore. We didn't, you know, it was all about bettering humanity through exploration. Um, and, you know, in, in all the iterations, uh, the, the next generation, the movies, uh, uh, so on and so forth, uh, it, it was just a very positive way to look at the future. And, and even uh, Roddenberry would say, you know, we made it. In Star Trek, 
we figured it out. And so I'm very thankful for those stories. And, um, you know, there's almost a, a sense of community within a Star Trek fandom, you know. Um, so on that note, and with us being thankful for Star Trek, each of us are going to pick an episode uh, that we enjoy. And uh, we're just going to kind of discuss the episode. As always, you listeners out there, join the conversation on the webpage facebook twitter we we'd love for you to participate and be a part of the the podcast in that way let's kick it over to our chief engineer uh he's going to be sharing an episode with us bob well i think uh anyone who knows me and knows that i'm big into those rubber monsters whether it's uh, godzilla or the creature from the black lagoon or a gorn could probably guess that i would pick arena for my episode and uh, always loved it. Um, you know, first time you see it, you know, basically they they go down to the planet, Cestus Three, and the the base is destroyed, and they get attacked. And then, you know, the first almost half of the episode, they're just chasing uh, the Gorn ship and trying to stop them before they get back to their, you know, to their uh, planet and uh, basically regroup for war. And uh, but then suddenly. Out of nowhere, the Metrons show up. Dun, dun, dun. We are the Metrons. <laughs> and uh, stop the Enterprise in mid-flight, warp factor 8 down to 0 in like, right. seconds, which would probably plaster them right up against the <laughs> view screen. But, <laughs> hey, this is Star Trek and this is science fiction, so it can be done. But, uh, but yeah, as soon as he disappears off the bridge and shows up on the, pl- on the planet... And I guess we should say, you know, if you don't see Star Trek, this is definitely spoilers. Oh, that's whole thing. true. Right. Spoiler alert. But he ends up on the planet, and <laughs> boom, there's the Gorn turns around and shows up. And, yeah, and it's like, how could you not cheer? You know, right. this is so cool. So uh, I did a little uh, Gorning out the last couple nights. And uh, I did a little research, and I uh, read a little, little book and everything. So... Um, you know, I'll just go into some brief things about... Wait, wait, Arena. let me get this clear. You read? I read, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. And uh, it didn't even have pictures. Oh, see, I so. couldn't have done that, so... <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, the episode was written, actually, by Gene Kuhn, who uh, wrote quite a few classic Trek episodes, but this was the first one that, uh, mm. that he wrote. And uh, it, it, the funny thing is, reading in, into this... You know, this was his first, and he wanted to make a you know, really cool original story and everything else. And it turned out that there was a story called The Arena, which was in Astounding Magazine in 1944, and it was written by Frederick Brown. And uh, the plot and everything was very, very close to what Gene Kuhn had written. Mm-mm. Now, whether, it's he, whether he read it 20 years earlier and just remembered it or thought he thought of it, regardless... Uh, Desilu, which obviously we have Lucille Ball to thank for Star Trek. Right. Desilu was the main production company when others. That's right. (laughs) We do. When other companies turned it down, Lucy picked up the mantle. But anyway, Desilu went to Frederick Brown and uh, basically bought the story from him and also gave him credit. If you look at the end of the episode, it's a story by Frederick Brown. Um, But yeah, it was uh, basically written by Gene Kuhn. 
And uh, there were a couple firsts, actually, in the episode. And uh, this is actually the first Star Trek episode that they actually used photon torpedoes. Oh. So that was developed for this. It's also the first Star Trek episode where they mentioned Starfleet. Hmm. Which obviously would be expanded on much more in oh, yes. future episodes. But uh, yeah, in this one, he just he doesn't say the Federation, he doesn't say Starfleet Command, he just says Starfleet. So that's when he's talking into his uh, universal translator slash recorder, which we'll get into in a minute, because that always confuses me. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> So that was the first, first taste of those. So uh, I thought w- what was really cool is some of the voice acting that was done in this episode. And uh, Ted Cassidy, who played Lurch, is the voice of the Gorn. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. He would later, he would also do Balok. Well, Balok's uh, alter ego. Yes. And uh, he would, of course, appear as, as Rock in uh, What Are Little Girls Made Of? But uh, I thought even more interesting was the Metron alien was played by a woman, mm-hmm. Carol, Carol mm-hmm. Shelney. But the voice was Vic Perrin. Now, Vic Perrin has one of the most distinctive voices, and you would know it in a second, as right. he was the control voice from The Outer Limits. That's right. Mm-hmm. So uh, he also did the voice of, like, Nomad in The Changeling. Mm-hmm. And... And this is close to my heart. He was Dr. Zinn in Johnny Quest. Oh. Bet you didn't know that. I did not. So, uh... Entertaining and educating. That's right. So, you know, in Gene Kuhn's original script, basically when Kirk is fighting the Gorn, almost the entire episode takes place on the planet with Kirk and the Gorn. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gene Roddenberry felt that it would be more interesting to involve the rest of the cast and to break up the action here and there. So that's why, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why the uh, the crew of the Enterprise is able to watch on the view screen. That was Roddenberry's idea and his addition to the script. Mm-hmm. So that was written in. But uh, also, you know, I mentioned in past episodes that you know, and we've all visited Vasquez Rocks. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Uh, the first thing I thought when I visited Vasquez Rocks and we were climbing up the hill to get to that one peak where Kirk rolls the boulder off onto the Gorn, I'm looking down and thinking, how the hell could William Shatner climb this hill in those Star Trek go-go boots? (laughs) (laughs) And I went home and I watched it on Blu-ray. And uh, the best part, if you really want to see what I'm talking about, is at the end where he shoots off his, his bamboo cannon. Yeah. And he falls back. And they cut to the Gorn, and they show him fall, and they cut back to Shatner, and you can see... <laughs> and they cut back to Shatner, and you can see his boots. They're actually soft-soled soft boots with laces up the front. And they're all black, but, you know, back in the 60s, you didn't have high-def Blu-ray, right? Yes. And most people are watching off a TV antenna on a black and white TV about 19 inches. Yeah. So they figured that would be passable, that no one would notice that he had laces on the front of his boots and soft-soled shoes and all that. And uh, But yeah, if you check that out, that's definitely how he ran up and down. Otherwise, he'd be slipping and sliding right. and falling right <laughs> off the side of the cliff in those go-go boots. So uh, 
The only other kind of uh, studying I did on the episode was I went back and read the James Blish adaptation, which uh, James Blish did a number of novels on Star Trek, and they were basically collections of short stories um, based on each of the episodes. And they're usually pretty close to the episode. The interesting one with Arena, though, is uh, the Gorn is fast. He can run quick, react quick. Mm-hmm. He's not this big lumbering guy in a rubber suit. Uh, he also has a long tail and uh, hard plates down his back. Huh. And also, the tunic that he wears, Kirk is wearing one as well. Oh. So when the Metrons send them to the planet, they're both dressed identically because everything has to be even in this fight. Right, you know, right. They can't have a one over the other. You know, but don't put go-go boots on Shatner <laughs> or on Kirk and not on the Gorn. It's interesting. So, uh, yeah, they're both in that. And then, you know, the big switch sort of at the end is at the, you know, spoiler alert, at the end of Arena, of course, Kirk spares the Gorn's life mm-hmm. and the uh, Metron comes down and says, okay, you know, you, you showed mercy, there's promise for your species, so we're going to let you go. However... In, uh, in the novelization, there's a slight twist. Instead of the Metrons, the Metrons in both versions do say that the victor can go free mm-hmm. and the loser will be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Well, in the novel, the Metron says that they've changed it up because obviously the winner is the stronger race, so they're the ones that have to be destroyed because they pose the greatest threat to the galaxy. Oh. But then they go back to you showed mercy and you know your race has promise and so they let him go, and uh, so at the end, which is really kind of weird and kind of it's almost like like Kirk doesn't get it in the novelization. But uh, Spock asks because in the novelization they can't see what happens on the planet; they don't ha- they're not watching on the view screen. Right. It all is just Kirk and and the Gorn. So Spock asks him how he won. And Kirk says, uh, I thought I did it by reinventing gunpowder which dim- with diamond dust and charcoal, but the Metrons say I won by being a sucker. Hmm. So take that for what it's worth. That's not very uh, satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk, you're a sucker, but you won. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's co- sort of my, my wrap-up of the Gorn. But really, you know, it's always been an episode that I've enjoyed. And, there's, you know, there's plenty of episodes, whether it's Doomsday Machine or whatever, that, that I enjoyed and could have talked about. But uh, right. the, the Gorn definitely left an impression on me from a very young age. So all hail arena. There you go. You know, yeah, well, I mean, it's such a great episode for so many reasons. I mean, obviously the Gorn is such a, a cool alien to look at and then right. the ending is like classic star trek right the whole mm-hmm. time you're thinking oh we've got to fight this alien and then you turn it around and kirk is forced to look at his prejudices and then were we invading their space and you know you have to have compassion for the alien so right. well that's yeah. a great twist too because you know you always assume kirk and spock are right and that you know they're on the the side of truth but then you find out as the episode goes on that well, maybe they were the invaders. Maybe there's a right. reason why they were getting attacked, you know. And it's like, then it's like, okay, you know, maybe they're wrong. 
Right. But again, it's kind of left open towards the end because Kirk basically says, or Spock says that that's something left better left to uh, right. to the negotiators and that. I had read but, somewhere the James Blish novelizations. Those were the stories before Roddenberry and everyone got a hold of them and chopped them up or you know rewrote them. Mm-hmm. So that was probably like. You know, it was they, probably an early script. Right, right. And then yeah, as they the, got into production to build the suit. What happened initially was Blish mm-hmm. got the, uh, the scripts, the uh, not the shooting scripts, but the, the early scripts. Right. And uh, so then... Because uh, those, those novels came out during the series, right? Right. And so yeah. Roddenberry and, and the others were a little bit horrified <laughs> when they saw the first novels that came out because they didn't match up with what right. was on the screen. And they said, no, no, you have to get the, the actual shooting scripts. And so then they did fix it. If people uh, are interested in the James Blish versions of Star Trek, there's actually a really nice hard-bound version of them, a collection, available at Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. And oh. uh, you just go in there and it says, like, Star Trek, uh, I don't know if it's Compendium or what it is, but it's basically a black cover with gold lettering Star Trek on the front. And it has a uh, line drawing of the Enterprise on the back, kind of a top view of it. And, uh, yeah, all the James Blish adaptations are in that. Cool. That sounds pretty nice. And, uh, you know, and I would, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Gorn himself and the fact that he was created by, uh, by uh, Hua Chang. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, who created quite a few Star Trek aliens as well as Outer Limits aliens and, and et cetera. But uh, I think it was basically one of his better works, obviously. It was fun with the um, remastered version of Star Trek that they have the Gordon, uh, his eyes blinking. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's also, there's an episode, I believe, of, was it Voyager? Where they came across a uh, an Enterprise-era starship, and there was a Gorn down in the oh, bowels of the ship. That's Enterprise? Okay. Yeah. And I was all excited to see a Gorn, and then it was like a CG lizard running around, and it was just, just yeah. really, really a disappointment. Not so great. Hua Chang was flipping in his grave. Yeah, flipping in his grave. <laughs> Did you guys ever see the Mythbusters episode where they tried to make Captain Kirk's hand cannon? No, I missed that. No, no, I've looked that Let, up. Let's just say it's more myth than reality. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they actually they actually discussed that um, in the making of the episode because he originally, you know, Gene Kuhn came up with this canon, and then you know the consultants for the series basically said that bamboo would just shatter, you know, just right. go all over. There's no way it could contain that blast, and that's why he added the part where he wraps the vine around it, you know, to contain. And then they it did basically shatter, you know, when he when he fired it, but. Mm. Um, yeah, they actually had consultants that would sit and look at whatever mythical stuff Star <laughs> Trek came up with and say, you know, that wouldn't really work. Budget, budget, have, budget, go for well, it. All that, too. <laughs> they have to rework that. Well, let's kick it up to the satellite and let's uh, get a uh, input from Karen on one of her favorite Star Trek episodes. Okay, so uh, we're going to go from first season to second season here, and Mm. the episode I picked out was Amok Time. Nice. So this one uh, is a pretty well-known episode, like Arena, in that uh, 
here we have our very logical first officer going bananas. Um, this was an episode <laughs> written written by Theodore Sturgeon, who's a well-known science fiction writer. But actually, uh, when you dig around in the details and, and like... Uh, like Bob, I looked at a few different resources, including Mark Cushman's These Are the Voyages books, hmm. and uh, kind of found out that although Sturgeon did like the initial draft, it had a lot of rewriting from Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and especially Dorothy Fontana. And so uh, basically in this, uh, Spock is hit with the uh, need, like all Vulcans are at some point in their lives, to uh, take a mate. But, of course, he's on the Enterprise, and he's the only Vulcan, and what's he going to do? Um, so we wind up with uh, uh, Spock losing control, not telling anybody what's going on. McCoy sort of figures it out. Um, and uh, the the problem being is that the Enterprise is ordered to go to this ceremony on uh, Altair, and uh, they can't go, they can't divert to Vulcan with, without losing time. And so... Um, the thing that's really great about this episode, I think, is that we get a, a bunch of things that I think people were probably, at least when the episode first came out, and of course later when, you know, people are watching it later, and wanted to find out about Mr. Spock. Mm -hmm. So we get to see our first glimpse of Vulcan. Um, we get to see more about Vulcan culture. And I thought it was really interesting that, you know, you kind of expect Vulcans to be really logical, like Kirk says to Spock at one point in the episode, you know, Spock says, well, I guess you've always wondered how we pick our mates. And Kirk's like, well, I assume you do it very logically. And we find out, no, this is something that is steeped in a tradition from the Vulcans back before they became logical, back when they were much more barbaric and violent and aggressive. Um, and this episode has really great, you know, set design. We go down on the planet Vulcan and we see, you know, this really hot desert world um the other great thing about this episode that i really appreciate is that we also see much more of um the friendship between kirk and spock certainly because kirk sort of like in star trek 3 the movie um where he you know basically throws away his career to save spock right um he does it here in this episode too um, you know, he disobeys orders to take Spock to Vulcan to save him. And, you know, you see this relationship that had been developing in the series. Um, you can see that, you know, they really are best friends. They're not just kind of co-workers. Right. And also McCoy, um, as much as McCoy and Spock would spar with each other, and McCoy sometimes would get really nasty with Spock, um, <laughs> There's a point at which they're heading, the three of them are all heading up to the bridge uh, as they approach uh, orbit of Vulcan. And uh, Spock says to Kirk, you know, I'm, I'm allowed to have a f friends at the ceremony. Would you, you know, would you come down? And Kirk says, sure. And then he also turns to McCoy and kind of hesitatingly says, uh, I would request M McCoy as well. And, you know, McCoy is kind of surprised, but he says, oh, I'd be honored, you know. So you see this friendship between these men that's really developed over the, the course of the, the first season. Right. Um, and, of course, we get, um, musically, we get a, a couple of really great themes out of this episode. Um, we get the really cool uh, kind of Spock theme with the bass music that you hear 
um, repeated later on in the series. And then, of course, the fight music when Kirk and Spock have to fight over to Pring. The fight is great, but like Bob mentioned earlier, um, it, it probably looked much better when people just had like standard definition TVs. When you have high definition, you can see the stunt doubles really well. <laughs> so it's, it's obvious to tell there's, that there's stunt doubles. Um, but it's still a very exciting fight. It's part of it's the music, part of it's just, you know, the two friends having to fight each other. Um, the weapons, the bizarre Vulcan weapons, the Lerpa and the on wound. I really love the expression on Kirk's face when he's handed the on wound, which is just basically this long piece of cloth. He just kind of shrugs his shoulders. He doesn't know what to do with it. <laughs> right. Um, and of course, um, we have the, uh, uh, the appearance, the ceremony to pow, there's so much uh, ritual involved. You get a real feeling of culture, um, the Vulcan culture here, and it's the first place we get it. And I can also say that on the um, on the remastered version, something I thought was really cool, um, and I love the way they remastered these. Uh, if you have the, the Blu-rays uh, folks out there, um, they didn't go overboard on the CGI or the other effects. Like Larry mentioned, with the Gorn, they could have remastered the Gorn, but they were very subtle. They just had the eye blink. They didn't do anything crazy. Right. The, the same thing here, when the, the crew beams down to Vulcan, uh, they don't do anything really crazy, but they give us this neat long shot. We can see Kirk, Spock, and McCoy walking to the ritual area, but in the distance, we see the Vulcan city of Shikar, and I went back and checked, and they took that shot. It matches up almost exactly with an episode from the animated series called Yesteryear, where Spock went back and visited his younger self. It's a time travel episode. But it was really cool to see the way they had matched things up so that there's this sense of continuity. Well, they did, uh, when they remastered those episodes, they did it with a lot of respect the original episodes. I mean, yeah, they definitely yes. didn't go overboard. They just uh, enhanced them. Right. They really did. They didn't change things necessarily. They just, like you said, enhanced or or added a little extra. Um, and I, I think this episode also was the first appearance of the um, Vulcan uh, hand gesture. And we also hear live long and prosper. Uh, and there's a great line that... Uh, that Spock gives once he feels, uh, you know, that the ceremony's over, he feels uh, great grief. He thinks he's killed Kirk. He's saying goodbye to everyone. He's already given up rights to, to Prang. And he tells uh, Ston, who to Pring is basically running off with the guy she's running off with. Uh, he, he says, you know, to Pring is yours. He says, uh, after a time, you may find that Having is not so pleasing a thing, after all, as wanting. It's not logical, but it's often true. I always thought that was such a great line. Oh, it is. Uh, And true. (laughs) And, of course, then, you know, we have the great reunion where he beams back up and uh, he's telling McCoy, you know, I've got to go to the nearest starbase. I will, you know, turn myself in, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, here walks out Kirk. He's, you know, in great shape. Everything's fine. And Spock. (laughs) <laughs> grabs him and says, Jim, and he's got a big smile on his face. So, 
just a great episode all the way around because oh, we yeah. get to see so many different things. Uh, Vulcan culture, Spock and agony and Kirk's friendship. So, uh, you know, what what more can be said? Wonderful episode. In a pig's eye. <laughs> <laughs> yes. McCoy gets a last word. Almost it, last word. It, it strikes me that McCoy almost had like an older brother thing with Spock, you know, the way he would pick on him. You know, it was... It wasn't meant to, like, really dress him down. It was more of, like, a, I don't know, just kind of like a, a not a frustration. Keep but him in his place. Kind of, sort of, you know, you're, you're not all that, Spock. Um, anyway. Do you think it was almost like a, uh, he's a doctor, and I almost wonder if he felt like Spock needed to let the human side of himself out to be healthy, maybe? Yeah, that's a good that's a good reason. Um, I don't know. You know and, and, and Bones is just kind of salty in his way, too. I mean, you know, he can, he can be a southern gentleman, uh, but he can also, you know, get a little ornery. <laughs> well, but, you know, there's also, it's almost borders on prejudice at some points. Sometimes. Because he'll mean, say, you know, green blood Vulcan. You know, right, right. Like yeah. There but, are times uh, where you kind of feel like... But again, it's the 60s, so it probably didn't seem as extreme back then. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting, though. The first part of the first season of Next Generation, they tried to have that kind of adversarial relationship between Data and I think it was the, the first Doctor or whoever. It was, was the second that. one, Pulaski. Yeah. yeah, she didn't last and, long. Uh, no, yeah. yeah, it was more like she was just picking on him mercifully, immersive, yeah. mercilessly. And uh, so, it, you know, it didn't have the same dynamic that, that the McCoy-Spock relationship had. It was almost felt like it was forced. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they had to abandon it. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I th- when you think of, like, all the TV shows through the history of television, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy was probably one of the best trios basically of characters it's the big three yeah yeah, yeah is, it's really the heart of i mean not not to insult the the rest of the folks on the original show but that's really the heart of the show right there right and mccoy would dress down kirkland you know damn it jim what the hell yeah you know so he, he gave a little spice to kirk as well well you know a lot of people said those three together are like what the uh the ego, the id, and the super ego. Right, or, right. Or, you know, you could think of it as like you've got emotions, you've got intellect, and then you've got sort of the um, the action. You know, somebody who has to, the decision-making part. So I can kind of see it, they, the way they interact with each other. Yeah, and that was a great episode, too. I mean, even Nurse Chapel had... Like her little thing with Spock in the beginning when he was having his meltdown and he threw the plomic soup. Well, you it, know, what's interesting about that, too, is I read that um, initially that was written, that role was written as just a uh, kind of nondescript woman on the uh, Enterprise, somebody we hadn't seen before. And uh, Dorothy Fontana said, well, if you're going to have somebody be, you know, falling in love or, or mooning all over Spock, you should make it Nurse Chapel, because we've already seen her interested in him back in uh, the Naked Time episode. And uh, it seemed to make a lot of sense, although I, I kind of hate to see 
any character just sort of reduced to uh, being such a, a soppy character. <laughs> but uh, well, it it's like more Spock sense. had the pond far, and Chapo was saying, "I'm right here." <laughs> <laughs> you don't need yes, to go to Vulcan. Apparently, a human woman uh, was not adequate. You know, there, if it was good enough for his father. <laughs> good enough for him. <laughs> there were various episodes where he and Chapel had like, you know, conversations or looks or stuff like that. So I, I thought it was a nice little, you know, nod but, to that relationship. Isn't that also though why they kind of writ, wrote uh, Yeoman Rand out of the series because there was starting to be some sparks between her and Kirk, and then Kirk had to you know go off and be the space stud and and all that. He couldn't. He couldn't be tied down to a yeoman. My understanding right. is there were personal things going on right. in the actress's life, and she got written off the series because of that. Well, I think it was accommodation. Yeah. So, uh, I think I had her book. Uh, Grace Lee Whitney? A, yeah. Uh, it was a forward by Nimoy. She kind of got into it. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, you know, it was it was a good story. That's a great episode, and I think... Uh, actually, and that was interesting that they had that little homage to the animated series because I remember that episode with his pet Saloth or Saloth. Yeah, oh, that his was pet Saloth by Chaya. Yeah, with the uh, it was the other one, the the beast that the Saloth fought that had the Godzilla roar. Oh, yes, <laughs> yeah. they did use Godzilla's <laughs> roar for that. And I, I believe there was an alien that kind of had Popeye's laugh also, but no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you always got to fit the sailor in an episode. At least we got our Popeye reference in. Well, I guess it's my turn then. Uh, I picked an episode that a lot of folks uh, don't really uh, bring up in, in Star Trek conversations. And this was All Our Yesterdays. And uh, this is a third season episode. It was episode 23 of the third season, episode 78 of the series and at this point um, they had a pretty good idea that they weren't going to get picked up uh, they had this script that they were shooting they had uh, they were getting ready for the turnaround intruder and I think there were one or two more scripts that they had in some form of development should they get picked up um, which you know unfortunately did not happen um, basically this story though revolves around uh, the crew of the Enterprise uh, going to this planet, uh, Sarpedian, and um, their son or their... No, their... Yeah, their star is going to go Nova. And so they uh, beam down to try and save uh, or help. And Kirk, Spock, and McCoy go down. They uh, transport into the uh, library, and they uh, come across Mr. Atos. Uh, and I think it was Walker who told me it was A to Z, and there's like a, a story behind that that we'll get into later. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, there's this device called the Tavacron, basically a time machine. And um, through uh, some mistakes, Kirk goes back into one time. He hears someone screaming for help, and he's like, Bones, Spock, follow me. And he runs through the thing, and uh, he winds up in like, you know, 17th century England is what it looks like. And uh, these guys are messing with this lady and, and he tries to be the hero and gets arrested. Uh, the people there hear uh, 
Spock and McCoy calling to Kirk, and uh, they accuse him of witchcraft because they believe it's spirits that he's talking to. So he gets put in the clink. McCoy and Spock try and run after him, though, after they're calling Captain, uh, and, and they hit the wrong spot in the time stream, and they go back to, like, the Ice Age part of the planet. And um, there's a severe blizzard going on, and, and they're still able to talk to each other, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, um, because they're near the portal, you know, in, in the time zones, until Kirk gets thrown into jail, and then Spock and McCoy have to go find shelter. They come across a... Uh, well, they come across a woman, basically, uh, uh, who saves them. She's dressed in these uh, skins, animal skins. Uh, Marriott Hartley plays uh, Zarabeth. And uh, for me, the Kirk side of the story wasn't that interesting. He's accused of witchcraft. Uh, the the judge or the, the lawyer that comes to represent him as actually an alien uh, or actually a, not an alien but I guess a resident of the planet and he uh, because they knew that the planet was going Nova all of the uh, race of beings from that planet went back in time to live out the rest of their lives and um, he's, he tells Kirk if you weren't adjusted if they didn't do something prepare you to travel in this time zone you'll only last a few hours and then you'll die so he's going to help Kirk go back. He does. Kirk goes back. And then he's working with uh, Mr. A to Z to bring back Kirk and Sp- or, uh, Spock and McCoy. The great part of this episode is Spock starts to fall in love with Zerabeth. And uh, McCoy reasons that because they've gone back 5,000 years or whatever, Spock is reverting back to a primitive thinking Vulcan um, logic and and that way of deducing problems um, is lost. Spock actually says, you know, it should be an equation to to figure out what we need to do, uh, but I can't can't solve it. And so uh, they figure out a way, Kirk figures out a way to bring them back to where he is, and Spock has to decide, does he want to stay on this planet and live out his life in the past with this woman that he's fallen in love with or go back to the Enterprise and Spock picks to stay but then they figure out that he can't because Spock and McCoy both went through the portal together they can only come back together and so Spock gives up love yet again uh, for Starfleet, Kirk, Spock, or uh, McCoy whatnot so they come through the portal and um you know he shows remorse uh, nimoy they're all great actors but nimoy was such a fantastic actor in showing the regret at one point in time um during the episode she asks him do you know what it is to be alone completely alone and spock says yes i do um anyway so they get back uh mr Atos goes back in time closes out the episode and they go on their merry way to uh, the next episode, which is Turnaround Intruder. We're not going to talk about that this go-round. But anyway, that's my episode. This episode, like I said, was uh, episode 23 of the third season. It was directed by Marvin Chomsky, written by Jean-Lizette Erost, 
featured music from George Dunning. Uh, the music for the third season, we kind of talked about this a little earlier. A lot of the episodes were love interest episodes, and the the musical cues were more along those lines. You're not going to have a lot of the music from Arena uh, or uh, Balance of Terror, you know, the exciting things like that. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's it's my... It's more the sappy music. It's more the sappy music, <laughs> sappy. The, the electric organ. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, too, is that um, a novel was written based on this story, and it was called Yesterday's Sun. And uh, basically, there's someone on the Enterprise doing archaeological research on the planet Serapidion. I don't know why, but they are. And uh, Spock finds out, and uh, there's um, Ice Age cave paintings, hieroglyphs or whatnot, uh, depicting a Vulcan face, and Spock realizes it's his son because of the involvement that he had with Zarabeth. Yes, they got busy, and um, he uses the Guardian on uh, the for, uh, forever um, to travel back in time to bring to, to rescue his son. Um, it's an interesting novel. Uh, there, there's some holes in the story. Um, Romulans are involved, and ultimately his son goes back in time because he realizes he has a destiny in that planet's history. So when was that novel written? Oh, uh, that's a good question. After the episode aired? <laughs> I mean, was it in the 60s, 70s? Is it uh, 1983. last week? Oh, okay. 1983, Pocket Books. Interesting. 191 pages. A.C. Crispin was the author. Um, I have the book. If I If I find it, I'll let you borrow it. That sounds interesting. It's not a page turner, but yeah, it is There's interesting. There's no Gorns in it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no Gorns whatsoever. Uh, what I found interesting was this is one of the few episodes where Spock, quote unquote, fell in love. And again, uh, I love Nimoy's style of acting because how does someone who is half human, half Vulcan, trying to hide his love, right, portray that or show that in this side of paradise? Because of the pod, he lost all control and freely fell in love and swung on a tree and swooned. In this, he was slowly losing his grasp on logic and, you know, had to decide, do I embrace, you know, well, he had some, logic uh, or not. Pretty intense scenes with McCoy as well. Yes. They, yeah, and McCoy actually figures out what's going on and... Um, kind of berates Spock into realizing what's happening because Spock's regressing and he actually, she brings she says, all I have is like uh, meat to eat and he's like you know, animal flesh I I, I don't, you know Vulcans don't eat that and she's like, that's all we have and he's like, okay (laughs) and he eats, you know, a piece of the pork chop or whatever so um well, I guess the question then is, uh, if Spock is regressing, what about McCoy? Well, you know, we're all barbarians. Uh, I guess. With, so. We haven't changed at all in all those years. <laughs> yeah, and, and, so apparently, yeah, we're just exactly the same. Yeah, McCoy had no problem eating the meat. <laughs> but according to the Metrons, we have promise. Well, that was a more of a first season episode, Bob, so <laughs> yeah, just play it. 
Not, anyway. Not from the season of Spock's brain. <laughs> like I said, not, not on a lot of people's favorites uh, as far as Star Trek uh, episodes go. Um, I liked it. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was, uh, you know, there's some weak points. Like I said, it, the other thing that was interesting is, you know, usually Kirk has the love story. Kirk had little or nothing to do. Uh, you know, I guess he found his way back to Mr. Atos. Um, real quickly. Liked, oh, go ahead, Cotton Walker. Oh, I just, I liked Mr. Atos. It, that, I was going to ask you, could you yeah, please so explain the story? the story to Mr. Atos? Oh, well, so the story basically is that the original story for this was written by uh, a lady who was a librarian. Yes. And uh, so setting it in a library was her thing. And then having the librarian, you know, be called Mr. A to Z or Mr. A Taz, you know, was like her little in-joke. Right. And uh, that was that was just it. She thought it was funny. At some um, point, they they said, "Well, can't we call it something other than a library? Can't we call it like the information repository?" And she's like, "Over my dead body." <laughs> she insisted on it being called a library. And you know that actor was also in uh, Breads and Circuses, the episode with the Roman planet. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, he was. Um, God, Ian Wolf. And Marriott Hartley went on to do Kodak commercials with uh, James Garner. <laughs> Rockford. Most illogical. And that is why we are so thankful for Star Trek. Hey, uh, at this point in the uh, podcast, it's time for our censor sweep. And uh, in keeping with the theme of this podcast, we're going to kick it up to the satellite. Karen, what would you like to share with us? Some of the latest and greatest products and or shows that the universe has ever known. You must rely on your human intuition. Well, yes, in keeping with our theme for the sensor sweep, um, I'd like to talk about a book that just came out, uh, well, recently, mm-hmm. uh, called Star Trek Lost Scenes. It's from Titan Books. Uh, It's a big one. It's a big coffee table (laughs) type book. It's about 270 pages. It's by David Talata and Kirk McElhoney. This is a really fantastic book, uh, I have to say. If you're a Star Trek fan, if you really love Star Trek, it's just uh, covers classic Star Trek, like the episodes we've been talking about. But uh, what these gentlemen did was they got a hold of um, some original film frames of Star Trek that are not frame that, that were not filmed that we saw in the episodes. So what they got were things that were behind the scenes pictures, um, bloopers, and also what I thought was really interesting were deleted scenes from Star Trek episodes. Um, some of these were uh, film uh, clips that they got from Star Trek Enterprises. So years ago, Gene Roddenberry had a company called Star Trek Enterprises, and one of the things they would send out to people were little uh, frames of film that uh, had been clipped from the episodes. And a lot of these were uh, just deleted scenes because back then nobody thought that, hey, we'll have a Blu-ray and we'll throw these things on there. Right, right. They didn't do those things back then. So they took all of these these frames, they digitally scanned them, they cleaned them up and color corrected them, and they put them all in a book. And they're just beautiful. Um, some of the things 
that really stood out to me is I'd always heard that the command tunics were really more of a greenish color than gold, and they color corrected all this, and lo and behold, they're really green looking. Um, <laughs> some of the neat things was they, they were able to show you what were actually on those bridge screens behind, like Spock and Uhura. Um, but the deleted scenes are what really stands out, and they have a number of uh, photographs that capture what were in deleted scenes. Um, things like um, from the um, Apollo episode, uh, Who Mourns for Adonais. Uh, at the end, there was supposed to be a scene on the bridge where McCoy comes up and tells Kirk and Spock that uh, Carolyn Palamas, the, the woman who had been with Apollo, was pregnant. Um, well, the censors didn't like that, so they cut that right out. Um, there was also a scene in um, Elan of Troyes where they're in this big rec room. They had actually built this rec room set, and Spock is sitting in there playing his harp, and he's talking to Uhura and, and Kirk. And So there's all these great full-color pictures, so I uh, just really recommend it. It's about $40 and uh, uh, well worth your time, to, uh, your time and money, so... There it is. Fascinating. Very good, and I, I second that. I, I think it's a great um, piece of memorabilia and or history of original track. Lots of fun. Hey, so we've come to the point where we need to conclude our podcast, and uh, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Um, thank you very much for the comments that you leave us. Uh, make sure that you check us out on the web. You can visit us at www.planetatepodcast.blogspot.com. You can also check us out on Facebook at Facebook. It's Planet 8 Podcast. Twitter, it's Planet 8 Cast. We appreciate your feedback and your opinions. Uh, Go ahead and share with us what you think uh, your favorite episode of Star Trek is or one of your favorite episodes. Uh, What is it about Star Trek that you're thankful for? Hey, I want to wish you all a very happy um, Thanksgiving. This episode should come out around Thanksgiving. And uh, we are thankful for all you listeners. So please continue to follow us. Please continue to listen. This concludes this transmission of Planet 8. Signing out. End transmission.